This is uh, Paul Schneiderman today on the 144th edition of the Sports Untold podcast, a Seattle-based show, also on RainierAvenueRadio.world. My special guest today is the Seattle University sports legend and former Major League Baseball player, John O'Brien. I've been told I can call John, John or Johnny today. Uh, Mr. O'Brien said no to me calling him Mr. O'Brien, so I respect those wishes. Uh, I'll get back to you in a minute, John. My podcast is also on Spotify, YouTube, Amazon, Google, iTunes, Podbean. You go to sportsuntoldpodcast.net. I encourage my listeners to click the like button regarding my show and comment. You can also go to sportsuntoldpodcast.net. And if you just Google Sports Untold YouTube, you can watch a lot of the video versions of my show. My producer is Olivia Coyne, University of Washington student. She's doing a great job. Uh, let me get back to you now, John. Uh, Johnny O'Brien is a distinguished Seattle University basketball legend, as I mentioned. Uh, Johnny had a major league baseball career, later worked at the Kingdom. He served on the King County Council as a commissioner in King County, worked as a broadcaster, worked as a politician, been a philanthropist, uh, worked in the business world. It is lived a fascinating life. Uh, as many uh, Seattle sports fans know, especially some of the people from a, from a, Johnny's era, John and his late brother, Eddie, were the first twin brothers in major league history to play for the same team in the same game. Uh, John also worked as a scout for the Colt 45s. We'll just get into a whole bunch of stuff today. Very, very long and distinguished and fascinating career. Uh, John, I really appreciate you coming on the Sports Untold podcast, also on Rainier Ever Radio. Thank you. It's nice, nice being with you. Oh, likewise. Likewise. This is great. Well, I guess my first question I have for you is just kind of tell us about growing up with your late twin brother, Eddie, and how you young guys got the sports bug as kids in New Jersey. Well, we were born in the South Amboy, New Jersey, small town, about 9,000 people. We had the distinction of having 51 taverns, uh, which shows that it was a, kind of an Irish town. And... Uh, we grew up there very poor, uh, didn't have any money. My dad worked on the railroad, Pennsylvania Railroad, uh, as a dock foreman and on the tugboat. And we went to St. Mary's High School. And uh, uh, I should tell you, you know, you, you're very kind to say those nice things about me. But when I think about me, I think about our high school, St. Mary's High School, was later named Cardinal McGarrick High School and no longer exists. Wow. It's totally out of business. Then uh, Ed and I played for the Pittsburgh Pirates, and one of the writers back there wrote that we were so bad we celebrated when we got rained out. <laughs> and uh, then I became a King County Commissioner, and they changed the form of government. Uh, and then I ran the kingdom, and I did such a good job, they blew it up. So I'm beginning to wonder why you got me on the program here. <laughs> But uh, anyway, we grew up in New Jersey, uh, did well um, athletically and scholastically, uh, and we're in high hope to, oh, I should say that uh, when we graduated from high school, at that time, there were uh, 16 major league baseball clubs. 14 of them wanted to sign Ed and I to minor league baseball contract. And uh, my dad said, you guys are going to college and get an education. He says, I only went to the sixth grade. I had to go to work. He says, you're going to go to high school, get a business, or to college and get a business degree, and you're not signing a contract. 
And when the chief, we called him the chief, when he spoke, that was it. And uh, so we were in high hopes of getting a, a scholarship because uh, we didn't have any money. And uh, Columbia University offered us one scholarship between the two of us. But we didn't have the money for the second one, so we turned that down. Dr. Huffman and his wife in South Amboy agreed to put us through Mount St. Mary's in Emmitsburg, Maryland, if we would agree to become doctors. And Brother Ed said, uh, we're going to get a business administration degree and play baseball, and we're not going to become doctors. And uh, you can you can believe how many lives that decision saved. <laughs> so anyway, we, uh, we were then working out with Seton Hall University, which is 10 miles from our hometown. Honey Russell was the coach. And it was one of those deals, 100 guys there, you 50 come back tomorrow and all that. Well, we came back the whole week and just everything was going good. We could have kicked the ball and they gone in. And uh, so we figured, man, we're going to get a scholarship to Seton Hall University, 10 miles from our hometown. And then we got a telegram from Honey Russell saying, sorry, boys, you don't fit into my program. And the word fit jumped out at us. And uh, as a sequel to that, uh, four years later when we were in the service, we played for the college all-stars against the Minneapolis Lakers in, in Chicago and the Knickerbockers in uh, Madison Square Garden. And uh, when we went to uh, Chicago, uh, the guy at the desk said, coach wants the players to check in when they came. So we went up to the room and knocked on the door and the coach said, come in. The coach was Honey Russell. So we walked in and he said, you little bastards. He said, I've been getting my butt chewed off in South Amboy or New Jersey for four years on account of you two. And Ed said, honey, we still got the telegram where you turned us down. And he said, burn it and you start both games. So anyway, we were, we were without a place to go. We were on a baseball team that won the New Jersey State uh, baseball championship by the semi-pro three years in a row. And in uh, 1949, we were out in Wichita, Kansas in the national tournament. And there was a fellow named Bobby Bilgrave, a pitcher for the Texas team. And he was a great friend of Al Brightman, who was playing for the Mount Vernon Milkmaids, who were the state of Washington team. And he told, he told Brightman about Ed and I in basketball and baseball. So during that tournament, we played against Mount Vernon. It was a 19-inning game, longest game in the history of that tournament. And then on the 12th inning, Ed got a walk as our first base, and Brightman had a little piece of paper and a pencil, and he said to Ed, he said, uh, Bill Graves told me about you two guys. He said, uh, how are your marks? And Ed said, we both graded cum laude. We had the Sisters of Mercy who showed very little. And... Uh, so he said, okay. He said, he asked a couple more questions. He said, and one more question. Ed said, sorry, Mr. Brightman, but I got the steal sign. So he stole second base, and we never had any more conversation with him. And about two weeks later, we get a letter from Bill Fenton that we have a scholarship to Seattle University. We grabbed the first plane, the first time anybody in our entire family had ever been on a plane. And... Uh, we flew out, uh, changed planes in Minneapolis, and it was interesting. Uh, from Minneapolis on the way, I think it was Northwest, 
the co-pilot came back and chatted with us a little bit. He was a nice guy, and uh, he probably saw the two of us kind of hanging on for dear life first time on a plane. And uh, he was the pilot of that plane that a year later disappeared over Lake Michigan, and they've never found any part of it since. But wow. never forget that. We got to Seattle <laughs> at midnight. Nobody met us. We stayed in the airport all night. Uh, garden the luggage we had boots and all we thought the snow was four feet high and uh grabbed the bus into town got up to seattle u and we we walked in the liberal arts building and we're standing there and this priest comes around the corner and he looks at us and he says tell me you're not the o'briens now we thought that was a hell of an introduction to the city of seattle but we said yes father we are and he showed my God. And he walked away. And he came back about 10 minutes later with Bill Fenton, who was the athletic director. And Fenton went through the same thing. We said, we are the O'Briens. And Fenton said, how about coming over to the gymnasium and working out? And Ed said, that'd be fine. He says, but who are we going to work out against at 8 o'clock in the morning? So they put us in the vets hall and about a quarter of 12, this big knock on the door. They're waiting for you over in the gym. So on the way over, Ed said to me, I don't think we ought to hold anything back in this meeting. Or, you know. So we zip in there, and there are a bunch of guys working down on the one end of the court, throwing the ball up, and about 50 people up in the balcony. And uh, so anyway, we go in the locker room, they give us a uniform, we come out, and you ever feel like you're, you're the target on the back of you, and everybody's... So Ed says, I think we ought to put our dog and pony show on. So <laughs> I said, give me a couple minutes to get my legs loosed up, which I did. And I walked in under the basket, and I jumped up, and I grabbed a rim, and I chinned myself. Now you hear all this noise going on up above. And then I dropped down, and I jumped up again. I chinned myself again, dropped down, and Ed dribbled in and dunked the ball. Here comes Fenton down the steps. He said, a very encouraging uh, gentleman. He said, but I would, uh, I would appreciate it if you didn't hang on to the rim. You might break the rim. <laughs> and Ed said to me, I think we're making progress. And, and what we had found out later, that when the Raymond got out there and he said, I got these two kids out of New Jersey going to get the baseball and basketball program going. They asked him how big we were, and he saw they're 6'3 or 6'4. They darn near died when they saw the size of this, but it, it did work out. What great, great stories. Did, did you ever envision, John, when you came out to Seattle as a young man, that, that you would just become such a fixture and such a big part in this community? Was ever on your mind when you came out to Seattle, that this would be your home for so many decades and you would play such a role here? Well, I'll tell you something. When we were, I think, 52, I was walking along the campus and I saw a girl. And I said, that's the one. And that was my decision to stay in the city of Seattle. And I'll tell you something, my beautiful wife, Jean, who's sitting over here next to me, come October 2nd of this year, we will be married 70 years. Wow. And that's the biggest part of my my whole life uh, and the best part of ever coming to Seattle. Love it. Love it. 
thanks for sharing your your lovely wife. 70, 70th anniversary is coming up. You know, you are so associated, John, with your late twin brother, Eddie O'Brien. You guys are associated uh, together with your athletic careers, and plus, you know, your identical twins. How are you and Eddie different anyways? Ed was the leader. I was the follower. And, and that worked very well because he made good decisions. But, you know, he, he died 10 years ago. But in a way, in a certain way, he's still with us. And, and I'll tell you why. Uh, see here, this is a, a stack of autograph requests. And it's still to this day come about four a week. Wow. And uh, so every two weeks, I sign them and send them back. And one thing happened, and we were with Tops, and I believe it's the 1957 my card. I have seven cards because I was six and a half years in the major leagues. And the 1957 card, which I'll show you right there. See that card? That's a mistake card. This is my card, my statistics. But it's Ed's picture on the card. It's a mistake card. We never told Tops. And then when it comes, I just sign it, Johnny O'Brien. So this is a great reminder to me all the time of that Ed's still still with us. Love it. Love it. Thanks for sharing. Well, here, here's, a, here's a rumor I want to ask you about. When I put up the interview announcement on social media today, I got a whole bunch of people wanting me to ask you questions. And one fella... Um, wants to know, and I think he's kidding around, is there any truth to the rumor that you and your brother ever switch uniforms if one if one was having a good batting day? Never, never did. We we did in high school one time uh, playing against uh, St. Mary's of Perth Amboy, but we we did it legally. It, in the books to start the deal, which was turned over to the official scorekeeper, uh, we had switched uniforms in the one guy that, that was their best guard guarded Ed the whole time. And after the game, he said, well, John, he says, I sure stopped you. And Ed says, yeah, go look at the book. <laughs> yeah. but then, we never did at Seattle U. Sean, you were a, a five nine. I think you were about five nine. You were a, you were a college All-American basketball player. It's pretty rare, even in this era, for a, a five nine guy to compete so well with, with much taller players. How'd you do it? You you got to go back to Al Brightman. Uh, the thing a lot of people don't realize about Brightman, he was the number one rated catcher in the Cleveland Indian organization, head of Jim Hagen, Hagen and all those guys. And when he was in the Army, he fell into a trench when on a bivouac uh, exercise. The bayonet stuck in the in the ground, and the the butt of the rifle hit his right shoulder. And they had to take a bone out, and he could never catch again. So he, rather than have a major league baseball career, went into coaching and became the coach of Seattle University, both in baseball and basketball. But uh, he, uh, as as you may know, in our day, uh, you could play one year of freshman ball and three years of varsity. Uh, for example. And I know this because a lot of these people are sending this, put all the statistics in. But I had 2,700 and some points in the three varsity years and almost 600 in the freshman year. So at Seattle U, I have 
3,300 and some points. In the NCAA, I have 2,700 and some because the freshman points didn't count in those days. But for Seattle U, it's a so there's two different numbers that uh, that uh, operate in that uh, particular area. But when we were freshmen, Brightman had the varsity ball club, but he would stay over. Bill Fenton was coaching the freshman team. And afterwards, we would scrimmage against one another. And Brightman and I would scrimmage against one another quite a bit. And uh, he was big and strong. and uh, But I'd drag him in the pivot and do some stuff. So he got the idea that this little guy can – do some stuff inside. And when we were uh, sophomores, we were up in, uh, I think it's Western Washington. And uh, we played the first half and, and uh, they, they should have fumigated the gym. We played so bad. And uh, we got inside and Brightman said, see over there? He said, I got five other guys. And he said, if you first five don't put this together in the first five minutes of the second half, you'll sit on the bench and they'll play. And he's, here's what we want. John, he says, you get off a of guard and go into the pivot. Higlin, you move out to the side. Well, in the second half, we outscored him 60 to 19. And that's how I became a center. Brightman realized that I could do a lot of things, jumping and moving around and with quickness inside. So all of a sudden, I became the five foot nine center. Amazing, amazing story. Um, and it was Brightman. Brightman had a great sense of, you know, he would look at the other team and, and his philosophy was, we're not going to worry about the other team. He said, let them worry about us. We'll do our thing. But we'd play a ball game in about five minutes and he wouldn't let us call timeout. He should keep running. Where are the other team out? But once we had a timeout, he had that other team picked out so well as to what they could do or not do. And he'd say, do this, do this, do this. And, and uh, he had an amazing athletic mind. Were you able to post against some of the big men, John? Oh, yeah. It, the bigger they were, the easier it was to move them around and fake. And, and uh, of course, the thing that always helped Ed and I, we could really jump. And uh, some guys said they ruined a couple of kangaroos when they cut our tails off. But uh, uh, th that helped in, in quickness. And, um, you know, sports is eye-hand contact, and we had and strong hands. The thing I remember, and I cannot recall one time when a ball was ever knocked out of my hands in all the time playing basketball because my hands were so strong. Wow. And, and and that all of that put together plus the leaping ability enabled these things to happen. Plus uh, Brightman's oversight in regard to uh, what I could do being there. John, you, you know, you were you were drafted by an NBA team, but you chose to play Major League Baseball and you had a good Major League Baseball career. Is there ever a side of you that wishes you pursued a professional basketball career instead? Uh Negative. We uh, we grew up playing baseball and basketball was kind of the sideline. And I guess it always stayed that way, uh, no matter what was happening. We did get drafted by the St. Louis Hawks and Ben Kerner was the owner. And when we go to Milwaukee, he'd take us out to lunch and he wanted us to sign, even if we'd play just home games. 
but uh, it was a little too difficult. We were married then, we were starting families, and it was going to be too difficult to play both sports, we thought. And, and so that's the reason why you picked baseball? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you, I you guess, filled, you, I you, guess uh, romantically, that was our first love. Okay, you felt a little more love towards baseball and basketball. Okay, interesting. You know, there's a famous game you played in, and a couple of my listeners wanted me to ask you about this. It was in 1952 when you played a team that beat the Globetrotters. I think you scored 43 points uh, that game, a historic victory. Um, how serious was the game? And because the Globetrotters are oftentimes just having fun. And how did you do it? How did you beat them? I'll go back to the beginning. Uh, Royal Brougham was the editor of the PI. And he was he was a guy that did wild things and just didn't bother about all the P's and Q's. He just wanted things done. Well, he got with Abe Saperstein, who was then the coach of the Globetrotters, and, uh, and the owner, and they went and met with Howard, I think it was Howard Hobson was the head of the NCAA at that time. And they proposed, Saperstein and Brown, that Globetrotters play three college games against college teams, and uh, all the money raised would go to the 1952 basketball program for the Olympics. And Hobson agreed, and there were two changes that he agreed to. One was uh, six fouls. Pros had six fouls. College had five. Bill Higgland fouled out for us, and to this day, he's the only guy in the history of, of NCAA that's fouled out with six official fouls. Uh, and the other was two balls. The, the pro ball was a little had a little wider seam. You could palm the ball a little easier. And uh, th those were agreed, and they would go into the record books, uh, and the games would count as, in, as NCAA games. They picked three colleges. They picked Notre Dame in the Midwest, Army in the East, and the University of Washington here in Seattle. So they get this going, and the first one was going to be out here in Seattle. And, of course, Brougham had never talked to Tippy Dye or Harvey Castle about using the UW's place. And uh, he gets this thing going, and at the last minute, Dye says, I'm not going to play him. He says, I'm not going to get embarrassed by the Globetrotter. We're not going to play him. So Brome didn't, bro didn't bother Brome in the least. He gets on the phone and calls Brightman. And he said, kid, he called everybody kid. He said, I got the Globetrotters in, in town Monday uh, for a game out at Heck Edmondson. And he said, will you play him? And Brightman said, what time? That's how we got in the game. We weren't even supposed to be in the game. I didn't know that. Yeah. And uh, he he sold the place out like boom. And uh, Harvey Castle was madder than heck because he hadn't approved, he hadn't approved it. <laughs> and that was broke. So anyway, uh, we worked out on a Sunday, which we very rarely did. Brightman says, all right, we got these guys Monday night. He says, they they play strict man-to-man. -man. And he says, we'll be it'll be easier to get the ball inside than Johnny inside. So this is going to be all right. Well, we were a little bit apprehensive. So comes the night, the place is sold out. The fire department finally stopped people coming in. 
And there were 5,000 people outside that they hooked up radio deal to a, a microphone. And uh, we get dressed, we're out there, and we're on this side. Globe players are on this side, the court's here. And here comes Saperstein across, and he was a, a short, heavy set Jewish fella. Yeah, yeah. And he looked at us and he says, Is this all you got? That's <laughs> when we won the ball game. Higlin patted him on the head and said, Get your butt out of here, and we'll show you. And we got mad. I don't I don't know whether we would have done as well as we did if he Abe hadn't said that. So anyway, we go out there and we're mad. We're mad. We want to play now. And the Globe Tartars were warming up in the fire department. There were probably 15,000 people in there when the fire department shut it down. And so then we're going to start the game. And the Globe Tartars did their thing at midcourt, the circle thing and all that. And <laughs> we we go line up, and here comes the movie actress Joan Caulfield out to throw the ball up to start the game. And I tell you, to this day, I wonder how she got into that dress she was involved in. <laughs> Joan Crawford. <laughs> and she threw the ball up, and nobody moved. All 10 of us were just eyeballing her. <laughs> she, got, she started blushing, and she walked off the court, and all 10 sets of eyeballs followed her all the way off of the court. court. And Hop Haggerty was the referee. And he, one of them, and he came out and grabbed the ball and he said, gentlemen, if you're ready to play basketball. And at halftime, Louis Armstrong and Thelma Middleton Middle entertained. He sang that, baby, it's cold outside, and, and all that. And he was doing a show at the Paramount, and he got so enamored with the game, he stayed for the whole second half and held up the Paramount the rest of his show. And uh, so anyway, we... we we were ahead by 10 points at the half. Ed hit a shot from about midcourt. They caught us uh, about five minutes into the second half, and it never went more than a couple, three points the rest of the way. Someone told me, and I don't know this for a fact, this is in my 70%, I guess, that hardly anyone sat in the last quarter of that game that was watching the game. And uh, so uh, anyway... Uh, my favorite basketball picture, I got a, <laughs> I got the ball in the pivot and Goose Tatum is guarding me. And I fake, I already dribbled and I had, and I faked like this and Goose went like that. And it looks like a 707 sitting on top of me. And I had to get rid of the ball. And everybody was covered. So I, I saw the edge of the rim and left-handed, I took the ball and I just went like that and flipped it up and Goose's arms didn't move. And it went in. And I'm coming down the court, and Goose is coming alongside me, and he said, knock that crap off, white boy. That's my shot. And I start laughing. And Ed yells at me, get your man. But that didn't bother me. He did that to me for four years. <laughs> but anyway, we were ahead 83-81 with three seconds to go. The Globe Tartars called timeout. And that was a, a technical because it was their sixth timeout. So I shot the technical and it went in. We were ahead 84, 81. And uh, Ed and I cut across one another. Doherty, uh, Moscatel took the ball out. And uh, I forget what Higgle was out of the game. Might have been Moscatel and uh, 
Darty cut across one another. Mosky threw the ball in. Darty got it, and he fired it way up in the air, and the gun went off, and the court was just full of people. It was you couldn't get off of the court. And uh, we win at 84, 81. And uh, so so it uh, I I think that game and the game against NYU back in New York the next year where we beat them 102 to 101. And that was the first time that two college teams in Madison Square Garden had ever gone over, both had gone over 100 points. I think those two teams, two, two games, were identified Seattle University as a major power in a Division I team. And uh, then later, few years later, not too many, Elgin Baylor came and kind of put the cement, uh, the, the nail in the coffin. And it, talking about Elgin, I was playing for the Pirates, and Ralph Malone, who had Westside Ford, put a team in the AAU league. So Ed and I came out, uh, and in those days, you had to get a job between seasons uh, because you just didn't make enough money playing baseball. Uh, Ralph called me and said uh, he'd pay me if I'd coached the uh, AAU Westside Ford. And I said, okay. So I got I got some of the guys I played with that were out of shape, some that couldn't make a college team. So I'm the middle of the middle of the pack team. And uh, I'm renting a Seattle U gym to work out with from Ed, who was the athletic director then, for five bucks a night. And uh, Ralph calls me and he says, John, this is Ralph. He said, I got another guy for the team. I said, no, you don't. No, you don't. I said, I got 11 guys. I said, one don't show up. I can still full court scrimmage. 12 guys is too hard to work with. He's this guy's good. I said, who is it? He says, Elgin Baylor. I said, who the hell is Elgin Baylor? He's this kid from the College of Idaho, and he's really good, and he's transferring to Seattle U. I said, Ralph, I'm not going with 12 players. He said, uh, when are you working out again? I said, tonight. He said, can he work out? I said, all right, send him down. So they come down, and Elgin looks all right, kind of thin, so about 6'5". And I said, start the layup drill. So Elge dribbles in and stuffs the ball two hands back that way. And all of a sudden, I decided I could go with 12 players. And I was a hell of a coach that year. All I had to do was get Elge to the game and put air in the ball. And Elge was, to me, kind of reminds me of uh, LeBron James. He made everybody a better player. He could have scored 50 points a game, but he he, he would tell everybody, Get loose, I'll find it. And the ball was there. And uh, the same, he was he was the early LeBron James in my mind. And uh, we won the we won the division that year and all that. And it was mainly because of uh, uh, Elgin. It wasn't because of anything I was imparting to them as a great coach. Got so many stories. You know, I did not know that, John. The story that you guys almost didn't even play the Globetrotters. That's just incredible how you. Last moment played them and, and with Joan Crawford on the court, Louis Armstrong in attendance. Those are just a great stories that it, it was a fabulous night. Yeah. You know, I got to know Abe pretty good later. And I told him, I said, you know, we won that game on account of you. And he said, Oh, and me and my big mouth. Yeah. But you know, the following year we were back in Philadelphia playing St. Joseph's. 
and the Globetrotters were in the same hotel, and they wouldn't talk to us. They were still mad about losing. Uh, I understand, and again, this could be in the 70%. That night uh, in 52 would have been their 3,000th win as against 134 losses. They got it the next night in San Francisco. So so the Globetrotters, it was a serious game when you played them. It wasn't a joke. No, uh, they, they never could get to the point where they could put their serious, their funny stuff on because it was serious basketball. Yeah. Wow. Gosh, gosh. Uh, legendary, legendary game. Uh, just yeah, a great story. If they jumped out on us, probably they'd have done their thing and, you know, and everybody got home happy and we'd have had a loss. But they contributed in a very large way with the NYU game to the identification of Seattle University as a major power in, in basketball. By the way, what do you think of the state of Seattle University sports today? Say that again? What do you think of the state of Seattle University Athletic Department today? How things are going with CLU? Uh, I'm a little disappointed uh, because I was a chieftain. And the chieftains were named after Chief Seattle. And then uh, someone objected to the mascot running around with the headdress on. And I felt they went too far and they just eliminated the name. Like I tell people, I was a chieftain, I'll die a chieftain. But uh, uh, college basketball to me is a little strange today. You, you know, they, they pay they pay the players. Uh, to me, and Ed, the thing that we wanted out of Seattle U basketball was a college education. And that's what we got. And I, I think they take, don't take enough into consideration of the value of that education when they get into this paying for names and all that stuff. Uh, what really the player is getting by getting four years of college education at no cost for playing basketball. And, and so I, I have my second thoughts about, about this. And I remember when Ed and I were at Seattle U, we, we had to, we got $30 a month and we had to buy our own books, buy our own food. We practically lived on Langendorf two day old bakery stuff. And, uh, and we even had a coach CYO basketball games you know, the little guys and the captain, you go, and I'll never forget one game. We're coaching to Saturday, or refereeing, I should say. And one of the coaches comes out and he's screaming at us, You two are cheating as your favorite. Other. And he's going on and on. And I said, Dad, tell him to go to hell. <laughs> Ed said, You can't tell a priest to go to hell. <laughs> so I said, Whoops. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. So, you know, John, there was a famous uh, baseball figure who I believe signed you with the uh, Pittsburgh Pirates. And Branch Rickey is also known as a man who helped break the color barrier by signing uh, Jackie Robinson. Tell us about Branch Rickey. What kind of guy was he? He, he and Father Amu at Seattle U were the two most brilliant people I think we ever met in our lives. And Rickey loved Father Lemieux. Father came back to watch us play a few games, and Ricky, with that hoarse voice, said, you two should be very happy to have a wonderful friend like Father Lemieux. But Ricky was something else. When we signed with the Pirates, 
we went back to New Jersey uh, for one day. Oh, what happened? We got, I should tell you this, we got a $25,000 or twenty or $25,000 bonus. And in those days, if you got over 15000 you were called a bonus player and you had to be on the major league roster for two years. So when we signed, I think we got, it, let's say 20000 Uh And we're going back, we're flying back to New Jersey and Ed says to me, give me your check. I said, what for? He said, we're going to take care of the chief. That was our dad. And when we got mom that died when between our freshman and sophomore year. And uh, so we got back there and he buys them a house and a car and gives them the rest of the money. And uh, we even had to get money back from him to pay the income taxes. And he was a little reluctant about giving it to us. But that was Irish family. You took care of the family. And uh, so then we flew to Havana, Cuba to meet Ricky. And we go into this room, and here's Ricky with that voice. And he says, Edward, what did you play at Seattle University? It says, I was center fielder, Mr. Ricky. He says, wonderful, wonderful. You're my shortstop. And Ed, like this, he'd never played the infield. And he says, what about you, John? I said, I was second base and shortstop, Mr. Ricky. Shortstop and third baseman. Wonderful. You're my second baseman. So now they got to make it a shortstop. And, and we both could throw real hard. That's why we wound up pitching later. But so here's Ricky behind the backstop with the bullhorn and the Panama hat on. Uh, Sam Naren's at first base with a catcher's mitt because Ed was throwing so hard. Clyde Super's hitting ground balls and Ricky's back there with the bullhorn. Hit the ball, Edward. Hit the ball, Edward. And then they'd fire it at first, and Ricky say, that's Pee Wee Reese. That's Pee Wee Reese. Hit another ball, Edward. That's Pee Wee Reese. And finally he says, let's have a double play. So he hit the ball to Ed. I come to second base, and he drills. And I say, Ed, you're not an outfielder anymore. You're an infielder. I said, put the ball up on the inner part of the, of the deal about chest high. Then I can make one of the four ways of making a pivot. Okay, get another ball, Edward. Let's have a double play. And he drills me again. So I walked over to the mound. I said, Mr. Ricky. I said, that may be Pee Wee Reese, but he's killing Jackie Robinson. Yoki <laughs> goes, ho, 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 ho. Hit another ball, Edward. <laughs> and he took a liking that night. He had his out to his home for dinner all the time. And he was the world's worst driver. I kid you not, you know the yellow line down the middle? He'd have one tire on one side and one on the other. And he'd be driving, and we're hanging on for dear life. And he'd say, oh, this Pittsburgh's a wonderful town. Everybody honks to you as they go by. <laughs> so, but he was a brilliant mind. And, and he just, and, 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 and he spoke in parables. We had a guy, it wasn't Ed or I, who uh, was leading off be just before we got there. And Ricky called him in one day. And he said, uh, I've got to tell you this, young fellow. You're an ironhead. And he said, what are you doing? He said, you're this high off of the ground. He said, he said I've got you going to get up there for on base uh, for my RBI hitters, uh, Metkovich, Abrams, and Kiner. 
He said, what are you doing? You're swinging at the 3-0, the 3-1, and the 2-1 pitches. And at best, you have warning track power. He said, but it's not your fault, or your father's or your grandfather's, because no one could get that stupid in three generations. <laughs> and they take him out, he says, I think I just had my ass chewed out. <laughs> you, you liked him a lot. You like Ricky a lot. He, Ricky was a brilliant man. Yeah, know? yeah. And he... He, he did it at St. Louis. He did it at the Dodgers. He did it at Pittsburgh. Put in uh, good farm systems and developed uh, developed some teams, some good teams. And he was very courageous signing Jackie Robinson, too, in that era. What's that? And he had courage signing Jackie Robinson in that era, didn't he? You know what Ricky did? He got Jackie in, and he said, Jackie, with that voice again, Jackie, he says, yeah. I must tell you this. You are not the best player in the Negro League. He said, but you are the man that I feel can take the abuse that's going to be coming with being the first black player to play in the major leagues. That's the kind of insight he had. Yeah. In training, uh, on Sunday nights, Ricky would give a talk. And all the townspeople started showing up. Recorders in front of him. He'd be sitting at a table. And there'd be 50 recorders there recording. And he'd talk about not so much baseball, about what you should do in life, what you, what, how you should handle people and stuff like that. He was just an amazing person. Real, real, real quickly, I John. I felt honored to know him and Father Lemieux. Well, it seemed like they were very impactful guys in your life. Real quickly, you're not a big fan of the transfer portal and name image likeness stuff in college sports these days? I think it's changed the game in the way that uh, larger colleges with the access to more money can start having an advantage over getting players. Uh, I, I don't think it's set up in a way that uh, is equal to all teams. Uh, so I would think the Seattle U, we only have basketball and baseball. But uh, you take Washington, for example. They can get bought out of some players unless they raise a ton of ton of money. So, and and the schools don't participate in uh, this LIV or whatever you call it. Uh, so you got outside influences influencing decisions of, of universities in regard to what players come. So it's a it's an oddball situation. And, yeah. Whole different era. I haven't got my fingers fondly around it yet. Yeah, no, I understand. A lot of people say the same. Who was the best uh, major league player you played with or against in your uh, major league baseball years? Ed figured out at one time that he and I played with or against 52 members of the Hall of Fame. Wow. You name them. Uh, Jackie Robinson, uh, Henry Aaron, Stan Musial, uh Mickey Mantle. Uh, we played against all of them. Wow. And a thing I might want to say is that I noticed over the years that these 52 guys, almost to a man, were nice people. Oh, good. They good. took the time to be with people. They took the time to sign autographs for kids. They, they didn't uh, have any great self-ego and and they were a pleasure to be with, and they were also 
a great advantage to baseball. Uh, I, lo I lock her next to Roberto Clemente in Pittsburgh. I lock her next to Henry Aaron uh, when I was with Milwaukee. And Henry was a great guy. And one day, Henry said to me, we were chatting before, he said, Johnny, he said, you know, I've hit a lot of home runs. He said, but I never hit a home run when I was trying. He said, you tighten up. He said, what you got to do and keep in your mind, punish the ball. That's what you think. Punish the ball. Well, when I was an arm saver pitcher, I gave Henry the 87th home run of his career. I tried to blow a fastball by him on a 3-1 pitch in Milwaukee. And it was in downtown Milwaukee before he got out of the batter's box. And uh, so when he, I was out of, uh, I was a county commissioner and out of baseball when Henry tied Ruth at 714 in Cincinnati. So I sent Henry a telegram. Dear Henry, congratulations. If it wasn't for me, you'd still be one short. <laughs> hit, a hit a thousand more. Well, I have a friend named Joe Quinn, who is a great admirer of Henry. And a couple of years ago, he was going back to Atlanta. I said, go to the Braves place. Henry's working for the Braves. And I, I'm sure he'd love to talk to you. And so Joe did that, went there. And Henry came out to see him. They started talking. Eventually, they got around to me. And Henry said, just a minute. And he went back and brought back the telegram that I had sent him 50-some years ago. That was one of the differences in our day of baseball. You didn't have an agent. You didn't have a doctor. You didn't have any of that stuff. The players were with the players. You went to dinner with the players. You, you, everything was a camaraderie type of situation. It's a little more uh, because of the agent and all. It's a little more individualistic type of game than it was in our day. And uh, so I'm, uh, I'm proud of the time that I had in baseball and more proud of the great people that I met. Isn't that neat? You know, you mentioned the 52 Hall of Fame players that you and, and Eddie either played with or against. I have a Hall of Fame question for you, John. What is your take on whether Pete Rose and guys like Bonds or Clemens should be in the Hall of Fame? How do you come out on that? Some of these controversial guys. I, I have mixed emotions, but my emotion leans, leans toward letting them in. Uh, they made accomplishments. They had some help. But for the most part, as I looked at those guys, they were great players when they weren't on steroids. Yeah. And and they got a little extra help later on. So I'm, I think the, I think there should be a, a little bit of forgiveness. Uh, uh, and it's a, it's a tough call because you don't want to give the opportunity or the right to players today to say, hey, I could go back on, on, on help. Uh, so I would think they might even have a little separate part of the hall sure. that uh, gives recognition. You don't have to make them Hall of Fame, gives recognition to those, to those guys. But uh, keep, keep the, the thing in a saying, you know, do it with your own ability. Don't ask for extra uh, steroid help. Do you think some of the Hall of Fame Hall of Fame writers get a little self righteous 
who they think should be in and not should not be in? Well, some of them are the worst enemies. Yeah. Pete Rose uh, probably be in the, if, if he wouldn't popping off all the time. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and I would guess the way Pete acts, uh, I would say of the 52 Hall of Famers, <laughs> maybe uh, not all, all of them. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, and, uh, you know, it's a, as a journeyman player myself, uh, I was privileged in my mind to be playing with these guys. Uh, didn't take any extra help. Matter of fact, we didn't, steroids wasn't a part of our game. Right. John, so, you, you did some broadcasting with the late Keith Jackson. What kind of guy was Keith Jackson? Tell us about Keith a little bit. Keith Jackson called me and he said, uh, hey, Ove, would you like to do the halftime or be my color commentator on the Seattle U games? I said, sure. He said, I'll pay you $25 a game. I said, boy, that's good. I didn't know I had to join AFTA, and it cost me 92 bucks, so the first four games were for free. And so anyway, uh, we're doing good, good, and, and we have the first game, and, and he's all right, you keep some running stats, stick the stuff in front of my nose. And he said, and then he said, uh, do the halftime interview. I said, okay, so we do the first game, and I'm doing this, writing things down, and I notice on the court, sticking the stuff, and I do the halftime interview, and I'm pretty proud of myself. And uh, so the next day, I called down a Como, and I uh, got a hold of Keith, and I said, Keith, I said, uh, just wanted to know what you thought of my performance yesterday. And Keith said, John, he said, I'm a word mechanic. And he says, the only word I can think of is horrible. Oh. <laughs> he said, now get your butt down here and I'll show you how we do this. <laughs> and he he got to the point, if you never ask a question that can be answered yes or no, he, did, you know, he showed me all the ways of doing it. And we had a great relationship. Just uh, And we called one another when he went to California all the time. Uh, and uh, Tori and him, uh, as a matter of fact, I had dinner with them the night before they left for California. And uh, he was good people, good, good people. He was blunt with you, it sounds like. He was very direct with you. <laughs> what was he that? He was very direct with you. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Um, did you, you play for the Seattle Rainiers for a year, right? I didn't hear did that. Did you play for the Seattle Rainiers for about one year, right? One year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, then I retired, uh, and the Red. I had been sold to the Red Sox, and they even promised to bring me up with the Red Sox the next year if I would stay with the Rainiers. And I said, "No." I said, "I'm getting a bigger family, and I want to start another career." So yeah. I actually retired at 29. I, I could have played uh, in Fenway Park uh, the following year. There was a guarantee of that. And then when I was with the Cardinals, they wanted to know if I was interested in being a player coach in a minor league team and then moving up. And then I said, no. Uh, so uh, there were other opportunities, but I, I felt it was time to move on. Sure. It, it's neat you have a little CL Rainiers uh, blood in you. They, they're a very historic Pacific Coast League team. So, Yeah, uh, the, the Rainiers were, were a good team. 
that that year. Uh, we had Joe Taylor, and Joe Joe always thought a couple of pops of the beverage before he came with. Okay. Right. <laughs> hey, Johnny, you've met so many sports people over the years. I've, I've asked these two questions to about every guest the last several years. You've met so many deceased and living sports figures. Who's a uh, deceased sports figure in history you would love to have met and spent time with? And who's a living sports figure who's still with us today you would love to spend some time with? Um, I never met him, but I would like to spend some time with Tom Brady. Uh, because, well, I'll, I'll give you an example. Sure. His mother plays tennis with my daughter's Ann. Oh. oh. And Ann told me, I know where Tom gets his competitiveness. And uh, so that, that kind of fitted in, but I've admired his ability to put it together. Um, Elgin Baylor was a guy I always admired being around. Yeah, yeah. Elge was, Elge was the kind of thinking of, how can I help the other guy be better? Yeah. Brady was the same way. And I keep, I, I, I fall into, my idol growing up was was uh, Lou Gehrig. Lou Gehrig, yeah. And uh, he died. You see time. my little picture of Lou Gehrig right here? No, I I Yeah, I got a little picture of Lou Gehrig here. So. Um, Number four. That's why I tried to have number four on every uniform I ever wore. When I got to the Pirates, the the uh, clubhouse guy says, what number you want? I said, number four. He says, you got it if you can talk Ralph Kiner out of it. Okay. The first year I was number 30. <laughs> so, so so Tom Brady is a living sports figure you'd love to spend time with. And Lou Gehrig is a deceased sports figure you'd love to spend time with then. Yeah. Okay, okay. By the way, uh, what's your favorite sports movie? You like probably the Yankees uh, with Gary, Gary Cooper played Lou Gehrig, right? You know? Yeah, and Teresa Wright played his wife. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, that uh, that that is my favorite. Uh, sports, sports movie. Sports okay, movie, yeah. okay, okay. It, it worked out well. You mentioned Lou Gehrig, and I, I want to ask you your favorite sports movie. It ends up, it ends up being the Lou Gehrig one. Um. Johnny, you spent you know several years as a King County Commissioner and King County Council member. What was your favorite uh, accomplishment in your years of local politics? My favorite accomplishment was that we got things done regardless of the political affiliation. Uh, when I first was elected, Ed Monroe and Scott Wallace were the Democrats. I was the Republican. And then when John Spellman got elected, uh, we too were the Republicans and Ed Monroe was the, was the Democrat. But we talked, we got together, we reviewed stuff. We, 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 did, we did a couple hundred uh, ordinances uh, a week and we talked about it. We met with the department heads on Friday. And the political entity didn't enter into it. It was it was a political job, mm -hmm. not not a politician's opportunity. And and I think a lot of that has left today. Uh when a person votes, I'm voting this because I'm a Republican and it's a Republican issue, or I'm voting this because I'm a Democrat and it's a Democrat deal. You're losing some of the value of what the job really is.
And uh, we used to do, uh, I tell people that Ed Monroe and Scott Wallace and I were together eight years before Spelling came in. And we did about 200 items a week. So multiply 52 weeks times eight years and 200 a, a week. That's one heck of a lot of laws for the county. And I don't think we had more than 10 disagreements. You know, I wanted to ask you something. You know, I, I think about you and John Spellman. I, I met John several times. I knew William, William McGovern a bit. There weren't a lot of Irish American Republicans in those days. Tell us about that, that you chose Republican. Oh, but South Dan Boy was 99% like Ivory Soap, 99 to 99% Democrat. Yeah. yeah. My Uncle Frank was a Republican. And I'll never forget, in those days, it was just the radio, you know, and they'd be giving you the state steals. And, right. my dad, and my dad and Uncle Frank would be sitting at the table with a, two cups and a jug of booze in front of them, and they're writing this all down. And I'll never forget one time my dad, who was a strong Democrat, said to Frank, Frank, how the hell can you be a Republican? And Frank says, Easy, Ed. He says, I came to my senses. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Did, did you ever think about running for mayor or King County Executive, Johnny? Uh, Keith was always trying to get me in the position to run for governor. And I said, I said, Keith, I'd be in mortal fear of being elected. I said, I don't want to get in, 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 involved in, in that. I said, to me, this is a good job. There's a lot of good can come from it. A lot can be done. It's not that political. I said, when you start moving up the ladder, you get into Democrat, Republican, Democrat, Republican, even independent. And I said, I, I don't want any of that stuff. Did you support Kennedy over and next to the next? Keep, keep saying, if you get off your lazy butt, we could do this. <laughs> <laughs> Got to ask you, did you support Kennedy over Nixon in 1960? Were you for JFK over Nixon in 1960? 1960? Yeah, when JFK ran. Did you support JFK or Nixon? Oh, I voted Democrat. Democrat then, okay. Oh, when I first ran as the Republican, Brother Ed said, I voted for you. He said, then I went to confession. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Um, who is your favorite politician in history? Uh, Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, okay. Had breakfast with him. Uh, I, I've met four presidents over my lifetime, and uh, they were all good folks. But you like President Reagan a lot. He's your favorite. I like Reagan. Had breakfast with him and uh, with Leo Sowers, who was the coroner. And uh, I'll never forget halfway through it, Leo says, Ron, he says, give up that governorship of California. And he said, run for president. And John and I will make you president. <laughs> gosh, you met some famous people. I just, gosh, it's just a, it's such a, uh, it's just such a, a list of amazing people you've been around. You were involved in the management of the kingdom. And you made a joke about this at the beginning of the interview, Johnny. Uh, were you sad when it was imploded, when it was knocked down? I, I got a 
a bum ear here. There. So no, we're good. You were involved in the kingdom management and you made a joke about this at the beginning of the interview. Were you sad when it was, when it was imploded, when it got knocked down? It was, I was for, for a hundred million, you could have widened the concourse and put escalators to the 300 level and all that. And, uh, uh, in, in those days, well, even so some today, today the, the tenant has a little muscle, you know, and if they say, Hey, we'll stay, but you gotta, gotta give us a new arena that covers a lot of weight nowadays. Yeah. But you would like to have kept the kingdom. You would have supported I, I, I gotta tell you a story. Yeah. We had everything. We had Evo Knievel. We had the uh, boat show, home show and everything else. And what we did, Ted Bosfield was the, manager, the first manager, uh, we agreed to never, among ourselves, to never uh, talk to a tenant of the city of Seattle. We're not going to purge somebody else's business. And then the home show, the boat show, and the auto show, all them that moved out of this center to us moved on their own. We, we, we figured we weren't going to start a fight with the city, we would just run around. Uh, let's see what happens. Yeah, and I'll, I'll tell you a story. I used to keep numbers in the parking lot and all. And what we did in the parking lot, uh, we hired uh, Joe Diamond uh, and his parking crew to run the parking lot for two years, and uh, it was a, I think, a sixty forty split. And in those two years, they would teach our people everything about running a par parking lot, which they did. And Joe Diamond was very faithful to anything he agreed to. Yeah. So the end of two years, we took over. And the parking lot became one of the biggest sources of revenue to us. It was an 87% net to us after we paid the taxes and paid our own crew. But uh, the parking lot became the, one of the more valuable assets to us. The kingdom. I didn't know that. Wow. wow. Yeah. You you and your brother were involved in, in some philanthropic efforts. I believe that you, you started a baseball foundation. Tell us about that. Well, we taught we taught baseball camps uh, in British from all the way from British Columbia down to uh, Sun Valley. And uh, we had Jim Piccolo. Uh, five, five different other coaches with us. And all we did was teach fundamental. Fundamentals. Fundamentals. That's not the way to look at a baseball. That's the way. They say, get that chin back there. The minute you pull the chin there, both eyes get to the ball. If you watch it here like this, only one eye is seeing the ball. Little things, but, but fundamentals. Uh, the weight, where's the weight on the, the balls of your feet when you're an infielder? Uh, so you get the quick start. Uh, all of that. And we, we, we taught for years. Uh, and uh, I think we taught something like 16,000 youngsters. Wow, that's a lot and, of kids. And, uh, one, one day we were teaching... Uh, up in British Columbia, and this one kid came up and said, "Mr. O'Brien, do you 
do you know, recognize me? And we said, no, we, we don't. We had our O'Brien uniform on. He said, I'm such and such. He said, uh, he said, uh, I went to your camp a great number of years ago. And he said, uh, he said, I was never good enough to get to pros. He said, but I got a college scholarship because of your camp. And he said, uh, now I'm a CPA. And Ed said, thank you. He says, out of 16,000, I knew we'd have one success. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, are you a Mariners fan? Well, you a Mariners? Fan of, we always felt that we owed something to the community. The community allowed us uh, to get the education. And as I think of everything I did after college, baseball, they running the kingdom, uh, all the other jobs I had, every one of them fell back on the education I received out of Seattle University. And so I volunteered as a truck driver for the Francis house and go out every Tuesday, drive the truck. And uh, and then I also was a Santa Claus. For, I did that for 40 years and so did Ed. No, Ed didn't drive there. It did another deal. And we both uh, were with the uh, uh, Forgotten Children Fund for over 40 years. I was president a number of years. And we were Santa Clauses every every Christmas Eve. We'd go into homes. And and it was so enlightening to go into the homes. And we, and we had people that would check out to make sure they were the right homes and they were really needy. And, uh, and we had, uh, we would deliver there were 25 of us that were Santa Clauses, and we deliver over 13,000 brand new toys and bicycles on, on Christmas Eve. Did that for 40 years. So there was 80 years of payback there. And uh, uh, it, uh, it it felt so good to see it. And, and you never knew what you were going to run into. And Ed went, and what you would do, you Send the head elf would go up and knock on the door and make sure it was the right look inside to make sure it was. You could always tell if it was a needy family, right? And then, and at one time, went up into the door and he hadn't knocked and he knocked on the door and the, the door opened and there was a gun pointing at his head. Oh, <laughs> and this guy said, "What do you want?" And they said, "Santa Claus is here." Gosh, gosh. It said the guy kept a gun on him the whole time he was in there. Oh, gosh. Uh, giving the presents out to the kids. And uh, fi finally, uh, as Ed left, the guy said, uh, Thanks, Santa Claus. Oh. <laughs> it's, wow. Philanthropies. And a big part of your life. It, it's, it's amazing the work you've done for all these uh, families. Uh, are you a Mariners fan? What's that? Do you follow the Mariners? Are you a fan? Yes, yes. You you become a local fan uh, when when you've been local and have done some stuff local. And yeah, uh, I, uh, I, I I think back to my day, and I think back to some of this day. Not not specifically the Mariners, 
But in our day, you did everything you could to please the manager. Nowadays, you see the manager in some instances trying to please the players. Yeah, right. What right. the heck's going on here? Right. You know, I remember Danny Murtaugh was my favorite manager. Fred Haney, second. And one day, Hank Foyles, who was our catcher, chased the, the Pirates, was chased over by, and he tripped, and he hit his mouth on the railing, Ooh. and he had 37 stitches inside outside his mouth. Well, he couldn't catch, because even off of the mask would break the stitches. So we got one catcher left, Hank, Hank Kravitz, Danny Kravitz. I'm taking batting practice, and Murtaugh's leaning on the cage. And when Murtaugh said, sport, something was up. So I'm coming out of the cage. He said, hey, sport. I said, yeah, Dan. He said, why don't you put on the tools of ignorance and catch some batting practice? I said, you got to be kidding. I said, I got a wife and three kids. I improved on that later on. Uh, so anyway, the next thing I'm catching. And the hardy part of catching is to keep your eyes from blinking when that bat goes through it, because then you lose sight of the ball. And I was getting hit everywhere. I had ball marks all over me. But that's what the manager wanted. And I'll never forget, we're playing the, the Giants, and Ruben Gomez is pitching for the Giants, and Mazarowski's batting. Skinner hit a home run, and the next, he always knocked the next guy down. And it looked like he hit Maz in the head, but it actually had hit on his shoulder and went up. And the fight started. Murtaugh came out, said something to uh, Gomez, who then gave him the finger. Murtaugh took a le left turn, and the fight was on. I break the world's record getting out of that bullpen into that fight so I can get Kravitz out of the fight so I don't have to catch uh, and I get tackled at first base by Aunt Nelly and Danny O'Connell. And they're laying on top of me and saying, hey, we don't have to fight. Let's, we, we, we're just wrestling around here a little. <laughs> so I finally get loose of them, and I jump up, and I trip Murtaugh, and he trips over me and lands on Dascoli, the umpire, who throws him out of the game. <laughs> and I still can't find Kravitz. And I finally get him. And I get my arm drawn, and he's so damn strong, I can't hold him. <laughs> but anyway, the fight broke up, and Kravitz didn't get thrown out. But that was as close as I came to catching in a major league. Wow, great stories. Well, what it, a wonderful, what a wonderful interview. I just had so much fun. Uh, and what's in the future, uh, Johnny? What do you have planned this winter? Any, any what's in the future for uh, you and your family? Uh, we went to um, the whole family. Gene's uh, saddled with a wheelchair, so we were not too travelish, but we did get to Hawaii, the whole family. And uh, every 4th of July, I mean, uh, St. Patrick's Day, the whole family gets together. We, we've had as many as 200. Uh, and Bruce King was, a, was an every year guy with us, and what a great guy he was. Nice guy. Yeah. And uh, so, so, uh, it's a it's it's a together family, and uh, so we always find things and reasons to. And uh, now we're holding the St. Patrick's on the twenty third this year because of a date conflict, and it'll be at the Chieftain, which is across from Seattle. You where they named the back room after Ed and I. 
I was just there. Yeah, the back yeah. room, the Johnny and Ed O'Brien back room. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're going to have it on the on the twenty third, and they take three hours where they close the restaurant, and we'll have about a hundred there. Great. And it's just people that enjoy being one one another, and that day everybody's Irish, and uh, we're, the thing I like about our family is just that it's family, uh, and they they all get along with one another. Uh, Gene and I had seven youngsters. We have st six still alive. They're all doing well. Grandson Riley is is pitching for the St. Louis Cardinals. He'll go to spring training next uh, no, this Sunday. Uh, uh, Joe's boy uh, Connor played at Seattle U. Pretty good shortstop. Uh, and we had uh, we have eleven grandchildren. Nine boys and two girls. So we got a baseball team and two cheerleaders. And <laughs> Love it. Love it. Great. The family just loves being together. There, there's no conflict going. And it's just fun. And it's like being with you. It was fun, man. Well, I really appreciate this. I'll have you say goodbye to Olivia in a minute. I really enjoy this, John. That's you and I stay in touch. What a, what a great, uh, great chat. Anytime, anytime. Olivia, nice being with you. 